We at On The Way Home would like to acknowledge the original stewards of whose lands this podcast is recorded on. In York Region, we recognize we're on the traditional territories of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, and the Anishinaabe peoples, and that this is the treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit. And in Vancouver, we acknowledge that we are on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh, whose presence on these lands continue to this day. Welcome to On The Way Home, a podcast dedicated to the issues surrounding homelessness and the incredible experts making a difference in the lives of homeless people. Remember to subscribe to the podcast anywhere you're listening and share it with a friend. Welcome to another episode of On The Way Home. I am Michael Braithwaite from Blue Door, uh, your host for today's episode, for all the episodes actually. Um, I was just thinking back, I was trying to think of something cool to do at the very beginning for our intro. I couldn't think of it, and I thought of the old eyewitness news uh, beginning where we go, um, and I can and, and I thought, you know, what? our guest today is far too young to probably know what that that would mean. Yeah, and, and so when, when I was growing up, basically, no cable. You had access to a couple stations, and growing up in Niagara, I would have access to all the Buffalo stations. So eyewitness news was the famous uh, station next door where you could also uh, many Canadians would drive what they call over the river to uh, go to the US to uh, sometimes get gas uh, or groceries uh, and somehow they save a few bucks. We're not going to do that. We don't need a cool theme because we have an amazing guest. Before we get to our amazing guest, let me tell you a little bit about the organizations that are bringing you this podcast. Let's start with the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. They do a massive conference and it's the first time in a couple of years because of COVID, of course, that they're able to do this in person. But if you couldn't make it in person, they're actually doing, it's one of the silver linings, I think, of COVID is that it taught us that we could do a lot of things via video conferencing. So the option, you could do a virtual, uh, you could attend virtually, or you could attend in person in Toronto. If you sign up before August 12th, don't listen to this podcast, might, might drop after that. So if you haven't, it's still very affordable. Check out the, the website, go to CAH. .ca and sign up today and check out. They've already released some of the speakers uh, that will be there. Uh, it's a great lineup and their keynotes are fantastic uh, as well. And as well, if you'd like to become a Built for Zero community, you've thought of that, getting to that functional zero where no one's experiencing homelessness because you have the services in place uh, for anyone in need, check out their website, go to the Built for Zero uh, page. They have a great team of people that are working with all sorts of uh, Canadian communities that have done great work across the country uh, and they can do great work for you hey what's happening at my organization blue door we're working on all sorts of cool stuff one of the things we're working on right now in an effort to increase the amount of affordable housing for the long term is something called the community land trust and we've had a few podcasts on community land trust we were fortunate enough to uh, receive a some funding from a cmhc to develop a community land trust in new york region and we're actually branching off an existing land trust out of Toronto, which is very, very cool. So for the next year, we'll be developing that. We have a very supportive mayor who has already stepped up to say, hey, you know, if you get this going, I'm going to try and put four units a year into this. And for people who don't know that the kind of Coles Notes version of a land trust is really that actually the trust has a group that uh, like a mini board, let's say, or a committee that decides uh, and manages the actual trust of homes and then groups like Blue Door or others can apply, actually operate that housing for uh, affordable rent geared to income housing for the long term, but the asset is always owned by the trust, so it stays affordable for the long term. So it's really cool. There's great examples of this all over uh, Canada and outside of Canada as well in different land trusts. If you want more information on that, go back in the catalog at onthewayhome.ca and check out some of the uh, we did two of them on uh, community land trusts and, and the success and the work that CMHC is doing. I encourage you to do so. But let's get to today's guests. Um, listen, in, in the line of work that uh, I'm in, uh, when we get asked sometimes a lot about the pathways into homelessness, um, and there's all sorts. We talk about uh, the trauma. We talk about family breakdown. Uh, but one of the main themes that comes up time and time again, of course, are income supports for so many people. And especially right now, I was announced yesterday inflation is up to 8.1%. And when things like that happen, the impact that it has on our most vulnerable. Um, and for so many, I, and I believe we may get into the stats, but I believe it's 1 in 15 uh, in Ontario, at least are on social assistance or receive social assistance or disability. 
And that rate has not really changed, or sorry, it is lower. The rates now are lower than they were um, in uh, 1995, I believe, when uh, it changed over. So you think about inflation even just here, but think about inflation year over year over year and trying to live with $700 a month or, or with disability at $1,200 a month and the cost of housing, the cost of food, the cost of transportation, the co you know, health costs built on top of that, that gap is getting wider and wider. Uh, so really interesting stuff. Income plays a large part in that. Why people are, are accessing food banks more now than ever. Uh, my friend Neil Heatherton at uh, Daily Bread uh, and his team just put out um, a report saying that eight, they had 8,000 new users in the last month, which is incredible. More and more people accessing and he would be the first to tell you uh, the solution is not more food banks, but it's around policy change. So why am I babbling on like this? The get, our guest today is an expert in policy. This is so uh, so much work around policy, creating better policy. We've heard from guests before that homelessness really is a result of bad policy. This is someone that is driven to design and implement good policy. And I am talking about Grima Talwar Kapoor, who is the Director of Policy and Research at Maytree. If you don't know Maytree too, I shall tell you more about it. Incredible organization. Uh, check them out. They do all sorts of great webinars. They release all sorts of great reports and information that are useful. Most of our listeners are in this sector. Uh, you Listen, check out Maytree. They have so much information that can help you, support you when you're asking for funds or you're looking to make change or looking to affect policy. It's there. Uh, prior to joining Maytree, Grima spent several years with Ontario Public Service in progressively senior role. She focused on understanding how changes in the labor market and economy impact population health and our social fabric and help develop policy initiatives that could help strengthen the income security system. Hence, even talking today. Uh, Grima is driven by a passion to understand how civil society organizations, government, and private industry can work together to strengthen communities. And, you know, it, it's uh, so interesting that when, you know, when she talks about this, quite often I think everyone wants to point the finger at government, and we know while they play their part, they are not the only player. We need all sorts of different supports, and as she said, working together to actually make change happen. Garima, so great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. Great to be here. Now, I think we've asked you, you are a second time guest. You were part of a panel mm -hmm. uh, a while back. So great to have you back. Now we get you one-on-one, -on -one, which is awesome. We asked you this before. I don't, you know, I, I, I'm gonna be honest, I don't remember what your exact answer was, but maybe we'll go back and see if it's changed at all because uh, everyone's answer has similar themes, but it's a little different. And, and so we ask this question to every guest, what does home mean to you? It's a great question, Michael. And, you know, I think, um, I might, it might start by being a little bit philosophical and then getting to, um, getting to the policy lens. And, you know, I think primarily, and to just be human about it, um, home is a place that I can be me or home is a place that we can be just us. Right. And, and so I think that, you know, that includes being a place of respite from the challenges of the world. It includes being a place where you celebrate some of the joys that life has to offer. It's also a place where you grieve when you suffer a loss. It's a place where you hang out with family and friends. Um, it's an anchor place where you sort of navigate or where I navigate my neighborhood and my community. And so when I think of all of the things that home means to me and um, and how it makes me feel and how it enables me to navigate my life with my loved ones, with work, with, you know, engaging with my neighborhood and community. Um, ultimately, then, I think home is a place where you feel safe and secure. And so often, you know, this brings me to the policy discussions that we often have around housing and the human right to housing in particular. And we often say that everyone in Canada has the human right to safe, secure, and affordable housing. And the affordable part is really important so that people can actually ensure that they can not only put a roof over their own head, but can also you know, feed their families, feed their loved ones, 
Um, but it, it's, it's that place that enables you to, to navigate the ups and downs of life. Um, and, you know, fundamentally, we at Maitri uh, believe that everyone in this country has that human right. Great, great answer uh, and expected to, I think, with your background and knowledge. Um, you talked about things like that anchor, too, right? When people say, um, when I get home, and it's just that that one constant, right, for people mm -hmm. and for so many Canadians and so many around the world, that anchor isn't there. When you don't have that anchor, you drift um, and, you know, you get into things sometimes where because you don't have that safety and security where you can drift uh, into you know, families breaking down, where you could drift into addiction, your mental health uh, challenges. If you didn't have any to begin with, you certainly without a place to get proper sleep and take care of your health, those can uh, develop or, or get worse. So, so yeah, uh, lots of good themes in there. And you talked about the human rights piece. It's very interesting. We just had uh, a panel, um, a great panel just uh, a couple of days ago on the podcast that we'll hear shortly that talked a lot about that, but in particularly the two claims they put forward around uh, women's women's rights with uh, housing as a human right and indigenous uh, as well, right? Those claims that, uh, that are there. So great panel to talk about. Uh, I think because people are starting to understand the whole humans, uh, housing as human right piece, but that act, bringing that to action is I think what you know, that next step is. And good people like yourself are working on that. Um, can we, all right, so you worked, uh, and I know this too, we've talked about it in your introduction, you worked for government. So you have kind of the inside scoop, or, or you've seen how it works on, on uh, both sides. Can you share with us just a little bit of your journey into this work? I don't know if you're in high school and said, this is what I'm going to do, or if it started later, but would love to know more. Sure. Um, so, you know, I, my fascination for, with policy actually um, started as a young kid. I'm a daughter of immigrants to Canada and, you know, uh, growing up, we were uh, a young family. I have a brother and sister who are twins and, you know, we're very close in age. And um, and the realities of being in a, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but at that time, you know, a working class family was really salient in 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 me understanding how to navigate my life. I, um, you know, we're a young family. My parents are, are newcomers to the country. Um, we're immigrants and, um, and my dad, you know, was not working in his field um, at the onset of the 1990s recession um, and was working in, you know, what we would now term precarious work. My mom was staying at home with us because we couldn't afford childcare. Um, and by the time I was eight years old, I actually developed an illness called diabetes insipidus, which is not traditional diabetes, but it's, it's water related. And so I get really, or salt related. And so I get really thirsty or dehydrated. And, and so I spent a week at sick kids hospital and, you know, it, and they, you know, had like the best care I could ever imagine. You know, it was a tough week. My mom stayed with me for a week. But when I came out, you know, the realities of, well, her, you know, like seeing, again, my parents didn't make it known, but, you know, I certainly had enough um, intuition to know that, you know, trade-off decisions were being made around around purchasing a medi of medication versus another, you know, thing that needed to be bought in the home versus a fancy meal, all of these things. And so, you know, at a young age, became acutely aware of how, you know, shifts in the labor market, absence of, of publicly funded prescription medications, absence of publicly funded childcare, all of these things came together to shape my life. And so, you know, growing up, I always had the dream of being, you know, it, awkward to say, but like a public servant. Like, I really think systems change matters and that's driven through you know my own personal um my own personal life experience um and so you know what was fortunate enough to pursue post-secondary education in this in this area um and eventually ended up working in the ontario government and spent a lot of time at the ministry of finance 
again, you know, growing up, if somebody said to me, oh, you're going to spend your formative years um, at the Ministry of Finance, I'd like laugh, you know, it's just not something I ever imagined I would do. Um, but was really fortunate to work in an area called income security and pension policy. And so was, you know, really exposed to how fiscal policy, social policy and economic policy converge at the provincial level. And through a number of senior, progressively senior roles was able to, um, to understand the, not only the mechanics of policy from within government, but understand what drives decision makers to make the decisions that they make, understand that governments are trying to manage a multitude of bottom lines, which is vastly different than what we might see in the private sector, um, and that there are a number of stakeholders with a number of with a number of varying opinions on where to go next all of which makes for a great democracy. I think over the past couple of years, what we've really seen is that um, evidence really matters to how we develop public policy. And increasingly in our increasingly polarized world, I'd say hyper-informed world, it also parallels with a hyper-misinformed world. And there's a lot of mis and disinformation that is that is circulating, circulating. And, um, you know, for me it, it, to be an effective policy player, I realized, you know, I needed to step outside of government for a little bit to be able to understand um, how all of these, you know, big salient trends sort of converge and how to, to help um, dispel some of the myths that exist around who is living in poverty and why they're living in poverty, uh, to dispel some of the, I'd say, decades-long ideas of how we structure social assistance programs and other social programs in Canada, how we think about who is deserving versus not deserving, and that eventually led me to consider work in civil society and, you know, three and a half years ago, I was fortunate to start my work with Matri. Wow, quite quite a journey, and thank you so much for uh, for sharing uh, your kind of the early years for who you are now and, and what you went into. Um, so you do may, many amazing things at Maytree, but today we want to talk about a uh, recent report around social assistance. Can you share with us what what is the social assistance summaries report, and, and why is it important? Sure, uh, happy to do so. So social assistance summaries uh, provides the caseload data the number of cases and beneficiaries of people receiving social assistance across 13 provincial and territorial jurisdictions in Canada. So as you know, um, social assistance is, is not within the purview of the federal government, is, it is within the purview of, of provincial and territorial governments. And so we actually have, you know, 13 different ways of structuring social assistance. And then within each of those Within each province and territory, we have a number of different social assistance programs. So in Ontario, you know, Ontario Works and ODSP, the Ontario Disability Support Program, are two of the programs that make up social assistance in, in Ontario. And so our social assistance summaries report, um, it follows on the work that the Caledon Institute for Social Policy uh, had done for years, and they actually picked it up from a report called the Statistical, sorry, I want to make sure that I get it right, the Social Assistance Statistical Report that the federal government used to undertake. So the federal government years ago used to actually do this work and work with provincial and territorial governments to collect, you know, the number of people that, um, that or information on, on who is receiving social assistance. Eventually, the federal government um, stepped away from that, that work and Kaladin stepped in to uh, fill the gap. And in 2018, we, um, we took, this, took this work over. And so for years, the report has just provided aggregate figures on the number of people who receive social assistance in Canada and what's new this year is that we've actually been able to 
collect information with the support of officials at, at provinces and, and territorial governments across the country to figure out how the you know the breakdown by household type. So are they unattached singles? Are, are they lone parent families? Are they you know um, two parent families with children, or is it a couple uh, household? Um, along with gender or sex breakdowns, depending on the province and, and the nomenclature that they use. So we're starting to refine how we understand who is using social assistance. And over time, we're hopeful that it enables us to match up caseload data with rates information and who has access to how much income support and whether that actually jives up, against, you know, whether need actually jives up against what people are being provided. Yeah, very, very important stuff for people to know and, and a lot of work um, in this sector, my sector, like many sectors, policy really matters. And, and with this report, what are some of the main policy issues that show through this year's data? Sure, um, you know, I'd say that um, what may come as a surprise for folks is that Overall, across a majority of programs in this country, we've seen a decline in the number of people receiving social assistance um, over the past year. And, um, and that is, I, I'd say, maybe counterintuitive, given what we've understood through the pandemic, right? Uh, that the pandemic has exacerbated poverty and made poverty more pronounced especially amongst those that were already living in poverty heading into the, the pandemic. Um, but I think what the data tells us as we look at, you know, what, why these dips have occurred, again, across, across a majority of the programs, but not all programs, is I, I think we need to understand the intersection with federal pandemic emergency supports that were provided through the course of 2020 and 2021. And because social assistance is within the purview of provincial and territorial governments, they have the ability to decide whether somebody receiving social assistance is able to keep income support from two sources of income support, right? And so we had some jurisdictions like in British Columbia, in Yukon, and in the Northwest Territories where a social assistance recipient who was also maybe a, um, eligible for CERB was able to keep income from both CERB and social assistance. And then we had, um, we had jurisdictions like in Ontario where with CERB and not other pandemic emergency benefits like the Canada Recovery Benefit where partial exemptions were provided. So, um, so um, CERB ended up being treated like employment earnings and so people lost 50 cents of their social assistance income for every dollar of emergency supports they might have received through CERB. And then we had other provinces that completely said, no, if you get CERB, you're no longer able to qualify for income support from social assistance. And so what we're seeing in the data is not necessarily that people are moving out of poverty. And I think that's really important to keep in mind that people who receive social assistance live in very deep poverty. And in Ontario, an Ontario Works um, recipient, a single adult, is a, at about 40% of the market basket measure, Canada's official poverty line. And so the ability to bring people who live in such deep poverty out of poverty is not what this data is showing. It's actually showing that, it's showing the interactions between various different um, income supports that came online at the same time. And I think an important lesson learned from that is that we really need to think about as policy actors, how we advocate for the development of new income supports and other social policy programs that help to ensure the complementarity of these programs as opposed to you know, these negative clawbacks that we've seen so many people endure. So that would be, I'd say, the first thing that um, you'd see in the data and I think would, would, you know, anybody looking at the data would ask, well, why is that happening? Um, the second thing, and I think something that 
I'm sure you often see in your work, Michael, is that for a majority of the programs, um, unattached single adults, that is people who are living alone without a, a partner and without children, make up a significantly large proportion of the caseloads. And that is important for us to understand and really take take notice of because there is an inverse relationship between the the rate of poverty unattached singles are experiencing and the the inadequacy of supports that are provided to uh, to singles and i think that that requires policy advocacy from our sector right there's um you know there's a lot of cultural um ideas about why singles have been kind of left behind and we can go into that a little bit if you'd like but you know by and large singles have been left behind for several years and and it's great to see that gains have been made amongst families with children for example through benefits like the Canada child benefit through provincial and territorial child benefits um you know, we've made gains for seniors um, to help them, you know, ease out of deep poverty and hopefully above poverty. Um, but we're not seeing that with singles. And the challenge is, is that the, you know, as you said in your intro, with the rapid increase in the cost of living, all we're doing is making it that much harder for people who face the highest rate of poverty to be able to actually come out of it, right? And the only solution to this is to help improve the level of income supports that they have. Um, and again, we can talk a little bit about the broader, the broader, you know, labor market, economic and cultural things that have happened to create the situation in my perspective. But those are the two key things that I think are, are really important takeaways from the report. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. It's so interesting we talk about the surprise of it. You see, what made me a little nervous around when it came out, the headlines were decrease in the amount of people accessing. So without the, you know, the, the background that you shared, right? Yes, there was a decrease, but for good reason, mm -hmm. right? We, this was not, you know, there should be an asterisk different times uh, and, and how people access service, et cetera. But when people see that, they say, see, you know, like, and it, this always makes me nervous when headlines and then information gets used exactly. uh, not appropriately, Absolutely. right? We were doing that. It, it also was a bit of a, now I remember this. So, so this spurned uh, Blue Door to do a little bit of work around uh, income projects. So we're working on a project right now with a, um, with uh, the Canadian Observatory and Homelessness, Away Home Canada, um, and uh, the United Way around income security for youth, right? As a, mm -hmm. kind of a housing first. But we, what spurred us to do that is one of, when I talked to one of the managers at one of our programs, she said, look, I know the rules, right? Around, so, so with CERB, anyone could apply and they would get it. Uh, the backside to that was that eventually they're gonna, if you weren't supposed to get it, they're gonna ask for that back. Um, and so what was happening with some Blue Door clients is she said, even though they were supposed to apply, and they were on Ontario Works. They did apply, so they got both. She said, but here's the thing. They housed themselves. They were housed. We never heard from them again. They were housed longer term because they were getting this. And, and that shows for, for so many, right? And I think in the GTA, it's about 80% of people who access emergency shelter. It, it's We call it one and done. They come in, they have supports, they're out again. Because usually it's just, can you link us through a landlord? Can there's some income supports, and then you, you know, you're you 20% more chronic and, and have higher needs, right? Higher acuity. But uh, but yeah, so we saw that happen. We're like, listen, it is just income at, at some points. And and right now, the Global Mail 
and I've been using this stat over and over, but it's $90,000 for a household. If if the benchmark is you're supposed to use 30% of your household income for housing, uh, a household in the GTA would have to have a household income of $90,000 to afford a one-bedroom apartment. Outside of the GTA, in bigger cities, it was 70000 So if you think of individuals with assistance, right, bringing in maybe 8000 a year, uh, disability 13000 that that gap, right? Um, and and it, kind of, it will lead me to our, our actual next question because, you know, the, the, this show focuses a lot uh, around housing, but it is... You know, that that income piece. So so, uh, how does this data from the social assistance summaries affect how we understand the main issues in other related policy areas, like housing? We're talking about now. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Michael, I think you've hit the nail on the head on when it comes to rents, right? Um, when so another uh, report that Matri puts out annually is a report called Welfare in Canada, which provides data by household type on the maximum supports a social assistant recipient or recipients can receive through social assistance and other income-tested tax credits and benefits. And, you know, in Ontario, for a single adult receiving Ontario Works, they're at about eight to $9,000 of annual income through social assistance and other income-tested tax credits, which you know, um, and and we're taking the maximum. Uh, so a maximum social assistance recipient receiving Ontario Works gets a max of $733 a month. That actually gets broken out into two types of benefits. One is the basic needs and one is the shelter allowance. And the shelter allowance, I'm, I'm smiling because it sounds so ridiculous to say out loud, is $390. Can you... I, 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 like, it's like a scavenger hunt to try to find anywhere, not even a rooming house at $390 in a, a month, right? It's just not possible. And so, so when we're thinking about the convergence of income security policy with housing, um, we have to understand that um discussions around around income support have a lot to do with how we're addressing the housing crisis especially at the low and moderate income level um, rate and you know there's a lot of discussion around the importance of building out the supply of housing and you know you're you're not going to get any pushback from me on the importance of building out supply but where I am going to push back is that we need to think about what type of supply we're building. And, and it needs to be affordable housing and deeply affordable housing. And right now, I do not think we're building at scale the level of deeply affordable housing we actually need. Right. So there's this huge disconnect between what market rents enable somebody to to house themselves and what we're providing people living in deep poverty. I think that, you know, one thing that we haven't talked about and something that I'm thinking loud, thinking out loud about is, you know, for decades, the theoretical framework that's structured social assistance has been, we need to keep rates low so that people are incentivized to work. So social assistance is not about poverty reduction. It is about incentivizing people into the labor market. But we've all seen the headlines over the past couple of months, upwards of a year now. We are, you know, unemployment is falling, is falling. We are at full employment levels. And so this idea that you can keep rates so, so you know, at some level criminally low, so that people are incentivized to work in a labor market that for years has not been creating good work at the low wage end of, of the income distribution. But outside of that, we're now in a full employment world. You know, the fact that there are upwards of a million people in Ontario receiving social assistance tells us something else um, is happening. 
and that trying to keep rates low so that people are incentivized to work without understanding what is happening in the broader labor market and pronouncing poverty just because we are stuck to this this theoretical framework no longer makes sense. And and I think we're actually at a time where we have to consider, you know, the importance of raising income support so that people can be adequately housed, so that they can have access to the things that they need to live a life with dignity. Um, and and you know, so just through the illustration of housing and through the illustration of broader labor market and economic dynamics, I think a really good case is not that we need to build a case from a, a human rights perspective, but even from a, an economics and just simple math perspective, what the what is happening more broadly in society is not... Um, is keeping people who receive social assistance further and further behind. And the longer we wait to, to improve the rates, the harder it's going to be to help, um, to help ensure that people receiving social assistance can live a life with dignity. Absolutely. I mean, I think when I said like our rates now, am I correct to say they are below what they were in 1995? We've never caught up to that. Was it 21%? Yeah, the cut, cut. Yeah, benefit cut. Yeah, so you think about the cost of living and how it's changed since 1995. Uh, and I'll tell you a funny story about that 390 where you say shelter allowance. What drove me into this work? I worked for the YMCA for a number of years. My last stop was at the YMCA of Hamilton. And, and that Y had a men's, uh, what's it called? It was a, a residence. It was actually back in the day, the Y would build these residences for if uh, you were a student traveling. You'd be like, oh, I'll stay at the Y. It's a cheap place. It basically is a dorm. You've got a bed, a desk, um, and a dresser, and you shared washrooms, no kitchens. But what it became in Hamilton, because of social assistance rates, was the most affordable independent housing because it was three seventy-five a month, um, and it, a, it was that dorm style. It was one hundred seventy-four men, uh, and it was independent living. There was not. It wasn't social assistance or, or social mm -hmm. housing. Right, so so the why there's no services in there. So you can imagine 170. Listen, 174 guys living together is never a good idea, uh, but 174 men, many many with like deep addictions, mental health. It, it, it was a tough tough building, uh, and I felt you know that's what drove me. Like we're doing nothing here, but they're here because this is what they can afford, mm -hmm. right? And it was it was full all the time. Like we never had vacancies, um, and, and even then there's challenges around uh, income. Uh, supports there so that, that reminds me of why like with that shelter allowance and and that was again that was like in the early 2000s when I was there um, and how things have, have really pushed up but but yeah I mean we see it uh, day to day where you talk about even what affordable housing is I think when we saw the affordable, affordable housing task force which should have been called the supply task force even they would tell mm -hmm. you that they're saying it was misnamed that uh, was really around home ownership mm -hmm. and Canadians have this fascination with home ownership and the government, because you know, that's their voter base, will say, hey, we've got to pander to home owners. And what we talked to people about, it was about making homes more affordable to own. So it really was never driven to what about all these people that are renting affordable rentals. And yeah, and I, I think we should stop saying affordable or even deeply affordable. And it's just rent geared to income. You know, if we're saying 30% is that barrier, how do we get people where it's 30% of whatever they are making. Um, and that's what we're trying desperately to, to try and get more and more uh, housing in the hands of service providers like the Wood Greens, the, the Blue Doors, uh, and others, um, the Dixon Halls, because are into these um, community land trusts, so they stay that way. We're losing a rate, and this is for the podcast guests we've had, for every new affordable build, we lose 15 affordable housing units mm -hmm to the private sector and, and tim richter recently told me said listen we have less affordable housing now than we did in 2015 despite all the building because of that rate of losing what's affordable now uh in renovations and stuff now this is a positive podcast and and, and we believe there's solutions and, and you know it, um, we, we don't want to have this dark cloud but it's true we've got quite a challenge ahead of us with this report 
that has come out, of course, like any report and the work that's done, uh, you don't want to sit on the shelf and collect us. It's not just uh, so so you know report. Uh, based on the, the data that Matri collects, it has collected for years, what do we need to address this uh, depth of poverty people are facing across Canada? What do we need to do? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, I think importantly, when we think of social assistance summaries in our Welfare in Canada report, the actual reports simply provide the data. They're meant to be reference tools. But what we do using that data is assess and analyze what the policy implications and the human implications of what the data show us. And I think when it comes to the challenges that um, single adults are facing, we can't, um, we, we can learn the lessons, especially from families with children and lone parent um, families that improve that improving the level of income support outside of social assistance so that whether, you know, if you're living in poverty but receiving social assistance or not, you have access to some level of income support. As we know, social assistance programs have very, very, very tight eligibility rules. So that paired with a lot of stigma associated with social assistance number of people who may qualify for social assistance from an income perspective actually don't end up receiving it. And so we, um, you know, what we've learned through, um, I'm not saying that we've resolved child poverty in this country, not from a long shot, but we've made significant gains. And I think we can point to the successes of benefits like the Canada Child Benefit, like provincial and territorial territorial uh, benefits, um, we can point to fam- to supports for seniors, income supports for seniors, in terms of how they enable people um, to reduce the depth of poverty they're facing. And so, one of the the new pieces of work that we're working on and want to advance um, in light of what the data through social assistance summaries shows us and through our Welfare in Canada report is that we need the federal government to step in and to provide that type of foundational support for working age singles in this country, similar to GIS and CCB. And so the way that we're thinking about it is developing a income support program, a refundable tax credit to be very specific about it, but you know, to really learn the lessons of what's worked in Canada and what hasn't worked, um, and think about how the federal government can provide that that baseline of support upon which other income support programs like social assistance can can top up. And um, so, you know, I think advocacy around targeted increases in targeted programs for working age singles is going to be really important. Um, so that's, you know, I think that's the push and I think that's where hopefully um, we can galvanize the sector to help advance policy ideas around that. The second area that I think we're really, really, really focused on is is building out a strong social safety net. And so that to untie all the knots and holes in our social safety net requires that we that we rethink some of the rules that shape who has access to income supports at what time and the clawbacks that are associated with it. So, you know, um, for a number of people who receive social assistance but also qualify for EI, if they qualify for EI, they lose you know, they lose for every dollar of EI they receive, they lose a dollar in in um, social assistance supports. And this comes from this idea that social assistance is a program of last resort. But what it does eventually is that it prevents people from being able to stack the different types of benefits that they have access to, to actually receive them. And so, and, you know, this is, um, this requires a little bit of understanding all of the eligibility criteria, but what I think really matters is that we have to centralize the experiences of people um, as we advance 
building out a, a new social safety net that, again, unties all of the knots that is currently uh, within it. So, yeah, I'd say, you know, the, the top key things are improving income supports for especially for working age singles um, and and single unattached singles specifically and um, and rethinking all of the negative interactions um, that exist between different programs in in our social safety net. Well said and uh, agree agree to, to all of that too. Um, I know that in Ontario they are doing some reform now. I think the reform though is what I've seen is loosely based around almost just how people uh, it's not so much what you said about looking at uh, the actual process or, or sorry it, it's it's really how they could access to make it a little more efficient so it's not really mm -hmm. about um, that mm -hmm. deep kind of looking at that that safety net right mm -hmm. it, it's interesting too and at the beginning you said you know it's the purview of the provincial governments or territorial governments to uh, for social assistance but we've seen how the federal government has stepped in to play a larger part mm -hmm. through uh, the child benefits through just recently I think they did a one-time rental benefit um, of 500 and and that that worked out to I think $42 a month uh, that again it's something that's just really not difference makers and I think part of it is what I hear uh, there was a promise during the election not in the budget in the province of Ontario to increase social assistance rates by 5% for ODSP not for OW um, and we haven't heard yet but but even with that, I mean, we've got to stop with the drop in the bucket measures and really, as mm -hmm. you say, it doesn't have, I mean, there, there's, yes, more income, but also how you access and how you can layer that. And, and we, you know, that Adam Bond said too, is that even with housing, all three levels of government have to work together, which is, you've been in government trickier than it sounds, right? Absolutely. So the feds with housing or, or with income can pump as much money as they want if the province is not on the same page with that, mm -hmm. it could be very tricky to roll out and see actual outcomes, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We need, you know, I often say we need to stop the policy hot potato between different jurisdictions. You know, people in Canada don't live their life in silos or by jurisdiction. And, and it's time that our policy leadership and decision makers, you know, take note of that and, and um, it's it's hard, you know, the interprovincial, federal, territorial, and provincial relationships are really, really challenging things to navigate and to reconcile. But at you know, um, but millions of Canadians are depending on governments to figure it out, and you know, it is the job of our sector to continue pushing ideas to help government be better. Absolutely. Show them the way, give them the data, give them the evidence. Um, and, and Maitri does such a good job of that. And you're part of that team. Where can people go if they want to see this full report? Absolutely. Um, please go to our website. We're at www.maitri.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Maitri underscore Canada. And uh, you can follow along um, our work there. Anything else? What's coming up at Matri? What should people, any good five ideas, what uh, webinars coming up? Anything you want to share? Yeah, our new five good ideas season is starting up in the fall. And so, you know, the the speakers will be announced as, as that gets underway. Um, so five good ideas is underway. Michael, you just uh, graduated from our Matri Policy School cohort. Uh, congratulations. Um, and so we will be starting up that process um, to uh, seek applications for the new cohort um, again in early fall. We've got a number of income security and housing policy and research reports coming out um, later this summer and into the fall and winter. So there's, you know, lots of activity and hopefully all helpful activity. Well, absolutely. Uh, it very much is. If you haven't checked it out before, uh, listeners, go check out the five good ideas. Check out the website. You'll get an idea. Uh, if, you know, for policy school, having just been through it, the, the speakers and the information, it's just incredible. Uh, this was uh, our, our 
uh, cohort had people that worked with the policy pe uh, world and people like myself who didn't. Uh, equally, everyone learns so much and you learn so much from the people actually in your cohort mm -hmm. too uh, and make a new uh, network. So it's incredible stuff happening at Maytree. Uh, Karina, you're welcome back. Anytime you have a report that I think with any report, as we said, we want to get it out and, and share that information with as many people as possible. Information, data, evidence is power to make change mm -hmm. happen like you've talked about. So let's get it out there. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you so uh, in the meantime, thank you for coming on the show and thank you for doing all you do. No, not at all. Thank you so much for having me. Wow. Uh, you know, it's... Uh, as you see, I get a little riled up when we talk about income supports because it's, it's increasingly uh, frustrating uh, across the sector. And I see my team we talk about when you do come around that unicorn where it's a super affordable room for rent. And that's what we're talking now, rooms for singles, but not uh, what bedrooms or, or, or bachelors. We go there and all the other social service agencies are there with their clients as well, right? You're battling to do that. It's... Uh, it is a tough gig. And we saw just that little light during serve when people were accessing that and they had a little more. And that was determined, hey, that's what your average person needs, right? So why, if that was the amount determined at the time, that's what an average person needs to live comfortably, are we okay with someone uh, bringing in $8,000 a year to live on? That's, that's crazy. We've got to do more. It starts with us. Government, uh, we vote government in. Uh, and so we could push to change that policy and make things happen. And if you need the evidence, the data, we have friends like the good people at Maytree that are doing that for you. Go to their website, check it out. If you want to become more of a solution, uh, sign up and try and get into the, the policy school. It's incredible. The speakers they have and the, the wisdom uh, that comes out of that. And, and, and also the leaders they get for their five good ideas uh, webinars that are starting up in the fall. Check those out. It's free. You go, you enjoy. Uh, and you learn so much. So I said, I'm always learning on this podcast, uh, which is great. And you see, I, I pull bits from every podcast around. They all kind of weave together. There's income, housing, health, um, justice, as we recently had someone on as well, talking about the links between justice and homelessness. Fascinating stuff. We are so fortunate that there's so many brilliant people here. Yes, sometimes we talk about a lot of negative stuff happening. But when you see the guests on this show, it gives me great hope. We can and we'll move forward. We can prevent and end homelessness. It can be done. Let's make it happen. We will see you next time on The Way Home. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.